Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps. So right before we turned the recording on, Will, you were asking whether this would be the final episode of the October term 2022. Our, for our podcast. You mean? Yes. No. Yes. Right. This is a little known fact about the court is that we think of the court's term as ending, issue all the opinions, but they still remain in their old term that summer until until they start over. And it's, I mean, the whole idea of the October term is kind of silly. I mean, it goes back to when the court would have multiple terms, but now there's just a continuous term, right? There's not like a, a secret recess period where you can do stuff without the court being able to do anything about it. Right. Well, I think until this is in Steve Vladek's book on the shadow docket, I think until the 80s, the summer was kind of separate. And so like different different norms applied during the summer, like the court. You, know, you wouldn't expect to look at the court together over the summer, so you'd have more in-chambers activity and stuff like you'd that. You'd have to go to the base of the mountain in right. Washington State to find Justice Douglas. Right. Whereas now the court's always, you know, able yeah. to cobble together a shadow docket ruling. And back in 1801, Congress could just cancel the term uh-huh. and keep the court from sitting what, for an extended we, period. Could they still do that? Could they still just cancel I the October know. 23 term? I, I assume that the court would say that's unconstitutional. I don't know what that would mean, right? To say that there's no term. Just no? Just okay. The court can't issue orders during a period? I don't know. I think it could still issue orders, but it couldn't sit. But like couldn't physically sit? Yeah. Well, that would be kind of meaningless, right? Well, it would mean that either like the normal response for the court would just be to hold all the cases on the docket. Yeah. Like Congress said, look, your docket's not that full. We're not going to waste money on a half full docket. So, you know, come back later. But then the court could presumably try to just deal with them all like by summer reversal or something. Yeah, I guess. But I guess back in back in the day when the Jeffersonians canceled the Supreme Court term that had the effect of like actually stopping the court from doing anything on the merits, right? You know, the, the, I guess it was the, was it the 1802 Judiciary Act that undid the 1801 Judiciary Act? <laughs> I, I wrote about this in the jurisdiction stripping paper, but now I've gotten the years. Those, I forget the name. I mean, those years line up. So I, I don't remember, you know, 1801 is the one passed by the outgoing lamp doc. Yeah. Yeah. And uh-uh. so then that prevents the court, you know, the court just can't do anything. I mean, well, I, I don't know what the shadow docket powers of the court were in 1802. Yeah. That's I mean, could the court have just summarily, without hearing an oral argument, summarily struck down features of that second, the, the 1802 act? This is way too interesting a question for me to just kind of start uh, freelancing it. I think there might have don't been. Don't we a do difference. that on all questions? Well, uh, some more than know, others, I guess. You some, you, some you know stuff about, and then I'm just trying to catch up. You don't normally ask questions this interesting, Dan. That was that um, was that was a good one. That was a good one. You don't you don't normally get uh, dunks that good in. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, like maybe they could have issued single justice rulings, like an in chambers opinion, but not a. I'm not sure about a collective opinion. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that would be good to know. All right, other sort of smaller stuff before we get to the meat of the episode. This will be a slightly less meaty episode, just because the court hasn't done much recently and, and we're I gonna think let that we, stop us for once yeah i think we've gone through the opinions from last term that we want to talk about 
I'm sure that there's more, you know, some people would want us to, to dig into, but I really think we hit the highlights, even if late. Yeah. So maybe turn to some feedback uh, a little bit. Now, one thing we've gotten from a couple different sources we got on, on uh, x.com and in our podcast reviews is complaint about vocal style, specifically that we are trailing off a little bit too much. I have listen to the episodes. I don't really like to listen to the episodes because I just find it too too cringeworthy. But I do think this is a fair criticism. Wait, when did you start listening to the episodes, Dan? Well, I, I listen to like five minutes of them sometimes to try to figure out what the title is going to be. Oh, okay. I don't think I've ever listened to one all the way through. Okay. Someday. but I listen to them all. Multiple times. All the way through? All the way through multiple times. Multiple times? What do you get yeah. out of that second and third listen? I get to laugh at all my jokes again. So you don't get to laugh very much. Oh, there you go. That was just revenge for the earlier one. That's fine. That's that not bad. That was, yeah, that was pretty good. So I am going to do my best on this one. It's hard because if I have a lot of ums, the editor can clean those up a bit. But trailing off is not something that is fixable in uh, in post, as we say in the biz. So I'm going to look out for that. Hopefully you can look out for that. I'll do my best. You know, our episodes sometimes kind of trail on. <laughs> trail on or trail off isn't isn't well, isn't the trailing this there's there's trailing on and there's trailing off those strike me as pretty different they might be correlated uh maybe because our voices are just getting tired yeah that's possible what else a little bit more kind of nice a review i liked i think it's currently the the most recent review on yeah. the apple podcast store from rob in ma presumably invariably Invariably, the first 15 minutes or so of your podcast reminds me of the opening shtick by clicking clack on Car Talk. But once you get down to the nitty gritty, it's a fascinating insight into the court and the cases. Keep up the good work. I take the Car Talk thing as a compliment. I used to listen to that show all the time. Yeah, people love that show. I thought so. And I think that they love the banter. But the but in that review makes me think that's meant as a criticism. Yeah. I will reiterate, though, that there is a fast forward button on your podcast app, and you can just keep hitting the you know thirty second skip until you get to the fascinating insights into the court in cases. I mean, to be fair, Dan, many people pointed out that you have to hit the thirty second skip button a lot of times. Okay, well, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we're working out your thumb. You know, too bad. Uh huh. I also got several, we got several substantive emails about our treatment of Coinbase last episode, suggesting that we were wrong and or didn't know what we were talking about. Really? Did did I get these or did were they just sent to you? Um, uh, I meant to forward you one, but. Okay. What, so uh, what was wrong? Well, the core, the, to reiterate, right, Coinbase is the, the case about the so-called Griggs principle about can a district court work on the thing that the appellate court is also working on. And what several pointed out is part of maybe what made, what made Coinbase harder is that it's not a straightforward application of the the normal Griggs version is the district court can't like undo the order under review while the appellate court is working on it. Yeah. But in these cases, the district court's not trying to undo it. The district court has just said, I'm not going to send the case to arbitration. I'd like to go forward. And the appellate court, you know, the question is more like, it's more like qualified immunity where you do have this kind of stay automatic appeal thing where it's like the district court has said, you think this case should not be in district court at all. I think it should. Therefore, I'm going to go forward. But because it's you know a right that we care about a lot, we might you know we might want the district court to kind of hold its horses. Wait, so I, I, I guess I don't understand that distinction. Isn't if the order under review is about whether the case can go forward or not, isn't it sort of interfering with the court's jurisdiction to 
say I'm going to go ahead and let the case go forward as the district court? Well, How is well, that different? I guess the, the classic interfering with the court's jurisdiction is where you start kind of trying to reconsider or vacate the order while it's pending, like the Moore versus Harper problem. Yeah. This is more like, I mean, even when the district court issues a final judgment, they get to go ahead and go consider attorney's fees, even though, you know, it's possible that the plaintiff shouldn't have won at all and there shouldn't be attorney's fees. All right. Maybe you're not buying this distinction. It was. Well, I might have bought it if if the complaints were sent to me, but just as channeled by you, finding it a little bit less persuasive, but maybe it's right. So let's see. Is there uh, is there anything else? From the reviews, what about this one? Originalism is bad. This podcast is great from Bacon Love It Thirteen. This is a great podcast, and I'd recommend it. Will faithfully recites the creed of the Holy Brotherhood of Originalism at all opportunities. Dan's just kind of there, but it's fun, calming, rational, and nice. I spent a lot of time thinking while listening that Dan is right and Will is wrong. But Will is the extremely smart, well-reasoned, kind of wrong. Uh, I think there's a word missing there. And that's what I want in a law podcast. Okay, that's pretty good. I think, Do you no, think, I think that's fair? I'm just, I'm just kind of here for the ride. Well, they also say you have very strong views, so I yeah. don't even understand the theory. Yeah, I don't, no, I mean, yeah. you're the... I, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I'm reciting the holy creed of, I don't know, living constitutionalism or legal process school or What whatever. is your holy creed, Dan? I don't, I'm not sure. I think I'm not, I think I may be an anti-Holy Creed. I think uh-huh. I'm kind of, my Holy Creed is like, let's be reasonable and kind of do stuff that more or less resembles what we've been doing. I mean, I think maybe it's a David Straussian common law constitutionalism, uh-huh. which has always struck me as a, certainly the best descriptive account of what the court, you know, did for, you know, the last very long period of time, maybe, maybe the whole run of American history, but at least a a, a good chunk of it where the court is, you know, at one point, maybe it starts with, you know, the constitution, but then, you know, really it's going on kind of building on the cases and a more common law method rather than digging down to the kind of first principles in every case, which is what you want them to be doing. It's They've always been originalist, Dan. <laughs> uh, so you're sort of a constitutional atheist? You, you don't have a holy creed, you're a... I'm not sure that that's maybe more agnostic would be the a Unitarian constitutional Unitarian. It's possible. I'd have to think about that. I do like that. It was the Holy Brotherhood of originalism because I'd say like 98% of, of originalists are male. Is that fair? Uh, of originalist law professors? Maybe. I mean, I'm not just, just you know, originalists in the wild. Like if you ever see like a gathering, you know, FedSoc gathering or, you know, originalism it, conference, it's, it's like 98 white guys. Among our students, it's definitely not 90%, 98%. I'm not even sure it's a gender skew, but but it's definitely not 98%. Okay, well, I can't I can't falsify that. President of our federal society is a woman, often is. Maybe at Chicago, you were particularly persuasive. We just admit the best people there. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it, I enjoy reading these reviews because at the moment, I'm getting so much stuff on Twitter about how I'm this like left-wing hack who worked for the Biden administration. And so I enjoy being able to read the reviews about how I'm actually a right-wing hack instead, which I find a little more refreshing. Or this Yeah, I've always thought that if you're getting flack from both sides, maybe you're doing it right. It also could just mean you're an idiot, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it at least is possible that it means you're doing it right, you're, that you're not a hack. It's a thin line. Yeah, sometimes everybody, everybody calls you a hack, and maybe they just yeah. all know you're a hack. One reviewer 
said that I goad you into defending various positions and you respond with the kind of whataboutisms that only law professors can tolerate while decline, declining to offer his own views. Do I decline to offer my own views? No, I think that there are situations where I say, you know, X is ridiculous. And you sort of say your catchphrase on the show, which is, well, and then you offer the, you know, <laughs> counter argument without, you know, saying that that's clearly what you agree with. The, sure, but it's, but it's Justice Alito. With, well, you're saying you don't necessarily agree with Justice I, Alito about everything. I frequently don't agree with him, but I feel like 98% of the criticisms of Justice Alito are also incomplete or wrong. And so I have to stand up for him. This reviewer flagged um, our conversation about when Justice Gorsuch said the, you know, COVID policies were the, you know, greatest civil rights violation in the nation's history or whatever, civil liberties violation. Yeah. And you were, you know, you were a little bit, you were like, well, you know. I tried. I tried. You're right. It's fair. Okay. Enough of that. Other uh, small things. Oh, actually, you know, we just got an email like two minutes ago. Uh, You want to try to just deal with it uh, in live? Sure. This is from Benton Duncan. It says, what would it take for the Supreme Court to actually rule whether a district court or court of appeals can or cannot issue a nationwide injunction? Seems like they've never confronted the issue because they're settling the case or rejecting it on the merits, not resolving whether an injunction is valid. Would it take someone in a different jurisdiction defying the order and being held in contempt? I presume that would be a pretty risky maneuver. It's a great so, question. Yeah. So I, I don't think it necessarily would take someone defying an order, and I'm not sure that would work, right? We have the collateral bar rule, which, as I understand it, as I remember it, it means that even if an injunction is improper and shouldn't issue and is even unconstitutional, you don't get to defy it and then challenge it later. There would be an interesting wrinkle if you if you claimed that it was jurisdictional. If you claimed the court didn't even have proper jurisdiction over me. Rather than just being something it shouldn't have issued on the merits. Yeah. We'd have to have a wrinkle about whether that that would still not be a that's your wrinkle. theory, right? You're allowed to ignore court orders issued without jurisdiction. Yeah. Oh, well, I think everybody agrees you are at some level. But if the jurisdiction under modern doctrine, if the jurisdiction has been fully and fairly litigated, uh, then you you know, oh deference to that determination of jurisdiction. But I think everybody agrees that, you know, if there's some order that could be issued by the Northern District of Texas where where the administration would just be allowed to say, like, you know, who the hell is this? Like if without even a case, if like Reed O'Connor just called up the, the White House and said, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna join in the rest of your term. I think they wouldn't have to appeal it. They could just be like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, the Fifth Circuit might. The Fifth Circuit would vacate in part, affirm in part, <laughs> modify slightly. Yeah. So, I mean, there is the the question is right. They'd, though, be, they'd be like, you know, your term has to end in late 2023 rather than September. Yeah, maybe they're going to find he violated Section Three. Hmm. That's that's a danger. Um. It is right that once the court gets these a lot of these cases on the merits, you know, once it's once it's decided the student loan program is valid or not valid, it sort of no longer seems relevant what the you know what the scope of relief should be, and that's I take it what the what the email is kind of getting at. That said, the court has had these shadow docket cases where the theory would have been the perfect vehicle for deciding the nationwide injunction issue. I think we talked about ghost guns maybe in the last episode. Yep, where so. In theory, there's a nationwide injunction in joining something. The court gets a request to 
at least pare down the nationwide injunction part before or until it gets to the merits. In theory, that would be a great vehicle. Like, and, and in theory, maybe the government would need to tee it up better. Maybe the government should bring one where it says, "We're not currently asking you to reconsider the the merits. You know, we're happy to comply as to the plaintiffs, but please at least vacate as to everybody else." Or yeah, they don't really want to do that. The other place I thought I don't. Do we ever talk about this case now from like a year and a half ago? Arizona versus the city and county of San Francisco. You think I can remember cases from a year and a half ago? Uh, well, apparently not. But that does sound uh, familiar, actually. This was like a whole complicated procedural back and forth where the Biden administration, a Trump immigration rule was being challenged, and the Biden administration decided not to defend it because they wanted to repeal it anyway, but they didn't want to have to go through notice and comment. So they're like, well, we'll just let it get struck down by the courts. And then Arizona tried to intervene because they were like, well, you shouldn't just allow this end run. And then there's another case pending in the Seventh Circuit, and the court ends up digging it because it's just like a complicated morass. But during oral argument, which was by Brian Fletcher, there was this amazing moment where Justice Kagan was kind of pushing the, the government on their positions and, you know, why if we let the government do this, this won't make sense. And, and she had, it seemed like she kind of boxed in the SG in this, in this way she can do until Brian Fletcher pulled out this sort of move. He was like, well, actually, this is really easy. All you have to do is hold that there's no such thing as nationwide injunctions and all the problems are solved because it was like a sort of complicated constellation of relief. And it was clear she was angry angry is too strong it was clear she recognized that it was not something she wanted to do it was a fair point but it's not something she wanted to get into and then sure enough they end up digging the case later so i feel like there are these places where if the court had something to say on this topic it could say it and so they must i don't know they must not know what they want to say there must be a block of justices who don't want to say these are totally fine and normal but who don't want to get on the gorsuch train i guess so or maybe they don't like them when they're enjoining things that they like and they do like them when they're enjoining things they think are bad. Yeah. They could say that though, couldn't they? <laughs> not in those terms. <laughs> Why not? That'd be well, I mean, they can, that yeah. would be, that would be violating the, one of the uh, Posen and, and Samaha anti-modalities. You know, this article. Yeah. Well, ago, is that? It, it's a cool, it's a cool article. It's basically, it's, you know, there's this, phrase in con law about the modalities and these are the different ways you're allowed to make constitutional arguments you know tax structure history precedent and so forth and then you know this article identifies the anti-modalities the things that you're not allowed to make right arguments. And things that that seem like they should matter right it's like we all think you should care about like you know which political party would this help or whatever but you're not allowed to you know, judges are not allowed to say them. Things that the judges are required to close their eyes to, to that we're all allowed to consider. Yeah. Yeah. No, so you're right. That, that A ruling that said what we imagine many people think, nationwide injunctions are good when they're on my side and, and bad when they're on your side, would violate the... There's an anti-modality of kind of totally asymmetric partisanship or something that that violates. I mean, unless they could phrase it in some some slightly more persuasive way. Right. Okay. A couple pieces of, of superficial news and then one uh, thing that's slightly more substantive and interesting. Something we never talked about from from last month is uh, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger eats five or six bananas on, on argument day. Uh-huh. That's a lot of bananas. Like I don't think I could eat five or six bananas. I think I would throw up. What really? would you eat 
on your oral argument day if you were Solicitor General in the uh, Haley administration? I assume, I'm just going to assume, this is bad news for you. You probably hadn't thought this through, but I'm assume that you're probably not going to be considered for high offices during the Trump administration, given that you've taken the position that Trump is constitutionally ineligible to be president because well, not he, if he gets if he gets amnesty. Okay. So if he gets if if Congress it's two thirds, right? Yeah. Did you need if two thirds of Congress awards him amnesty, then you're all good. You're in. Yeah. Okay. Well what would you eat for breakfast? Coffee. You would you would go no breakfast, coffee. A, a small piece of toast. That's my usual running out the door breakfast. I assume you you know, I'd be moving on. I wouldn't be eating at six bananas. Yeah, I mean you might want to have some you might want to kind of load up on some some carbs or something to be, you know, especially given that the arguments now can last infinity amounts of time, right? That's they, true. Can, they just go until until they're tired of you. Yeah, I'm an eggs guy. For us eggs are good. Breakfast. Yeah. One time when I second chaired a Supreme Court argument, I had some corned beef hash and eggs. That was great. I don't know. I'm not sure I would have had that meal. That was at the Supreme Court cafeteria. I'm not sure I would have had that meal where I argued. Right. Okay, so that that's one SG yeah. piece yeah, of uh, of non substantive fluffy trivia what about this one did you see did you see this one former acting solicitor general of the united states neil kotjall narrowly escaped you know certain death uh at burning man i might have seen this was this on twitter this was on x.com uh as we say now formerly nobody says that now (laughs) it's well it's really annoying like you know you you it's very confusing. Like they've taken away all the Twitter branding everywhere. But so things got dicey at Burning Man because of heavy rain, near flooding, very, very muddy. It was kind of turning into Lord of the Flies type situation. And Neil uh, was apparently there. Not sure what he was up to, but he tweeted out that he said it was an incredibly harrowing six mile hike at midnight through heavy and slippery mud, but I safely got out of Burning Man. He had never been before, but it was fantastic with brilliant art and fabulous music, except for the ending. And then, you know, it's a little complicated to say how this tweet was received. He included in the tweet some pictures, um, one of which was him in his uh, Burning Man attire, Mm -hmm. which included a painted hat with a kind of pinwheel on top, yeah, a a shirt with a bunch of like weird art with with dolls. And then a gold chain necklace at, at the end of it was an extremely large, it looks like a, maybe like a ceramic head of a screaming clown or something. Yeah. The so hat, the it was a little, nice. not what a, I was expecting. It, and it got, you know, got some, some, you know, uncharitable folks on the X mocking the, the outfit and the claim that it was a harrowing uh, six mile hike, but it would have been would have been a shame for Supreme Court advocacy had he not made it out. I do think uh, Neil is one of the best Supreme Court advocates in the business. He's had some really successful oral arguments, mm-hmm. so congrats to him on surviving. Yeah, no, the Twitter threads then devolved, and so you know he started giving people advice on how to put plastic bags over your feet to keep your feet dry because the mud is going to leak into your boots. And then other people said that would give you trench foot, and then he acknowledged that maybe that was true. He wasn't sure, but the the people at the park had told him to, to go with the plastic bag route. And, well, uh, it, it got a little bit more interesting than that. Did you see he got quote tweeted by Jeff Clark, Jeffrey Bossard Clark, the former DOJ official who tried to, you know, basically 
take part in a in a coup, possibly a rebellion covered by Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. Quite possibly. Did, did you remind me? Did you come? Did you come down on him being disqualified? He's on our list of people who deserve serious inquiry. And uh, he he quote tweeted this, and he said, and he's currently a criminal defendant down in Georgia. He says, "Why am I not surprised that Neil Kachal made it a priority to get to a neo pagan ritual?" Pray that these folks come to the light and realize that the only path is through and to our Lord. We are all fallen and need God and to repent as a nation. I will say, while there were many different aspects of the sort of the criticism of Neil, the argument that he was a bad Christian was not an angle I'd expect. Yeah, because as he pointed out in his own quote tweet, that he's a Hindu. Yeah. Yeah. Very- that went in a direction I wasn't really expecting. So, uh, yeah, any other like... Have have you ever former been SG SG trivia in the last month? Mercifully, I can't think of any. Okay, we're probably forgetting something. Oh, SG Foods. I, I was told that uh, former uh, SG Don Verrilli always makes uh, makes a point to have fish the night before an oral argument. That's, the idea, I guess, fish being brain food. Really? That's what I was told one time. I have no idea if it's, that's true. Does it but work that way? I mean, I. I understand. I doubt it. Brain, I, but- I doubt it. It sort of seems seems like if you you should be eating fish like during maybe at least during the <laughs> refreighting process or something. I don't know if that's true. Someone who worked in in the really uh, OSG maybe can can chime in and let us know whether that's true. Oh, one other non-substantive thing: we had sort of questioned whether a Supreme Court justice had ever appeared on a podcast. Yeah, Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, in, when she was promoting one of her books, appeared on Conan O'Brien's podcast. So. Whoever appears on ours will not be the first. Yeah. I feel like Conan O'Brien's is a little big to be a podcast. but Yeah. Has any justice appeared on a law podcast? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Okay. Slightly uh, more substantive one. An OSG uh, alum, friend of the show, Zach Tripp, uh, wrote to me in the wake of our discussion of the spending clause and um, individual causes of action, which is, you know, something that came up last term and told me about uh, a case he's got, which is uh, called Landor versus Louisiana Department of Corrections. This case has actually been decided since Zach wrote me, but the plaintiff is a Rastafarian who under RELUPA, which is the uh, religious Land, land use. Do you remember? The Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Yeah. So it's it's like one of the it's, – it's something Congress imposed, the you know, drafted the Re- Religious Freedom Act that was partially struck down as exceeding its powers under the 14th Amendment and then came up with this new statute that imposes sort of, you know, religious accommodations requirements on various kinds of entities that receive funds from the federal government, including prisons. And this – uh, plaintiff is a Rastafarian as part of his religion. He's not supposed to uh, cut his hair. He had very long dreadlocks. He uh, went to, he was in uh, jail and brought with him actually a a copy of a Fifth Circuit opinion sort of saying that he was, there was a you know, religious yeah. right to have dreadlocks in prison. And these uh, prison officials threw it away and forcibly shaved his head. Yeah. So everyone recognizes this seems to be like an egregious violation of federal law. Just yesterday, the Fifth Circuit issued an opinion saying he cannot sue the prison officials uh, who were involved in that because there's no, as they read the statute, and there's no individual 
cause of action for damages. Right, right. So it's not a qualified immunity case. They just conclude that that Arlupa does not let you sue individuals for their violations. Yeah, under the statutory, yeah, statutory claim. So, so there are a lot of cases that say this, and they've always seemed wrong to me. And then, relatively recently, like a year or two ago, the Supreme Court took a case about this and said they were wrong. But the case is about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. So there's a question of you know what the if a federal official governed by RIFRA violates your rights, can you sue that person for damages? And the lower courts had mostly said no, but the Supreme Court took it and said yes. You know the statute, you know, lets you lets you get you know relief, and and that's one of the forms of relief it lets you get. But the Fifth Circuit said, well, okay, maybe if you'd sued under RIFRA, a federal pr- official in a federal prison, you could sue for damages. But our LUPA is different. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the court will grant this one. I assume there will be a. a- Petition for certiorari forthcoming. Uh, it seems worthy of, re- of re- review. Yeah, I assume there will. So the argument that it's different is this argument that our lupa is justified by the spending clause, unlike RIFRA. And there's this idea that the spending clause is less powerful and doesn't let you impose the same kinds of direct regulations. And so, you know, maybe it, it can't or presumptively doesn't create causes of action. That part seems sort of like a rerun of the arguments we talked about recently in Tlevsky. Yeah. The court had this spending clause statute was like, is this how seriously do we treat spending clause legislation? So I don't know if there's a, I guess you couldn't just like GVR and let up Tlevsky or something, but. Yeah, because this uh, is post, post that. Yeah. But I mean, certainly the court rejected the idea that you never can bring such an action. That that the spending, like there, there are no individual causes of action under the spending clause. Well, uh, the suit in Tlevsky was not against an individual. It's against an entity. Yeah, and the cause fair. of action came yeah. from Section 1983. Now, I don't totally understand why then an Arlupa prisoner couldn't bring a Section 1983 suit, if that's the theory. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something something funny is going on here. Well, there was um, one. The, the Fifth Circuit did did provide the plaintiff some uh, some relief. In that, in the final paragraph of the opinion, it said, we emphatically condemn the treatment that Landor endured. And they put um, emphatically in italics. Yeah. So sure so that. now his rights are protected because the Fifth Circuit will emphatically in italics say that his treatment was condemnable. I'm sure when he shows that the it, Fifth Circuit opinion condemning their conduct, they'll uh, throw that in the trash for the other one. So you read a lot of these, actually, uh, opinions where the court finds no remedy like sometimes it's a criminal case where they find harmless you know the prosecutor did something terrible lied on the stand or something and then they find harmless error but they they have a section of the opinion where they say but we we condemn this we just like to make clear we condemn this i've always hated those yeah i've always felt like if you don't have the yeah have the courage of your convictions right yeah either way like if you're gonna say this is lawful then don't condemn it or if you're gonna say that there's no remedy then you know it's not your place to condemn it do you think that that like officials care about that? Do you think there's some like guard no. getting yelled at because the no, unless it suggests the possibility that they can be sued the next time, right? In a case involving qualified immunity, yeah. Okay. Can you just bring me back to Tlevsky for a second? Because it's been a long time. Uh, it hasn't been that long, but now I've forgotten. So it Tlevsky means is about like whether you can even enforce the rights at all. Tlevsky is about if you have individual. a right, if you have a right created by a spend, by a spending clause statute. Can you enforce it using the cause of action in Section 1983 at all? Like, can it? Not whether there is a separate cause of action 
under the provision itself. Right. But okay. those obviously are intertwined questions. And if our loop does not create a cause of action, again, you might still wonder why you can't use Section yeah. 1983 to enforce it. Yeah. yeah. I have uh, no idea. Now, this is the kind of claim where, where if it was brought directly under the free exercise clause, I assume would run into Smith. I assume so. Although even Smith, I, I guess presumably it's non-discriminatory. I was going to say, if it turns out they're, they're shaving Rastafarians, but not other folks, then it would violate even Smith. And, but or if there's other evidence of animus, like from uh, Lukumi, but, but presumably under Smith prison is allowed to say, you know, everybody's hair is shaved, no exceptions. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would like to think that if you could get to the establishing a right and just get to the question of qualified immunity, like throwing away a, you know, published appellate opinion, like resolving the question should be something that means there's no yeah. qualified immunity, but it should, although it's this funny quirk of qualified immunity that it's an objective standard rather than a subjective standard. Yeah. So would, would every reasonable officer still be unaware despite being handed the opinion? Well, like suppose the decision is like in theory distinguishable. There's like some clever distinction yeah. you could make, but the officer clearly didn't make it. The officer didn't read yeah. the opinion and say, ah, this only applies to quarter inch beards, not or whatever. Under current qualified immunity doctrine, the fact that the officer was flagrantly trying to violate the law is not relevant. Perhaps you will prevail one day in convincing a majority of the Supreme Court that qualified immunity is not lawful. I'm not holding my breath down. Okay. How am I doing on trailing off? I feel like I'm doing better. I think so, but I'm, I'm not. I'm really working on it. It, it takes okay. a certain amount of concentration. Yeah. It's kind of like trying to fix your posture, which is equally hard. You have to constantly be remembering. And I have bad posture and I've, I've been told I need to work on it. But you yeah. have to, well, to kind of keep that in mind constantly. It's very distracting. They're related because if you like sit up straight in front of the mic, then you're less likely to trail off. I'm standing. I have a standing desk. I admire that. And I'm still trailing off. Okay, so should we continue our upward path towards more and more substance? substance? Yeah, if listeners have not pressed the skip button 80 times by now, what do you want to talk about next? So we don't have any new uh, opinions as such, which is, which is good because it would mean it would take longer for us to prepare. We do have some uh, shadow docket type activity. Quick one maybe to talk about is there had been a request made by Senator Durbin on behalf of the Senate uh, Judiciary Senate Judiciary Committee that Justice Alito uh, recuse in this upcoming case. We're surely going to talk about this case some uh, more, which is about whether Congress has the power to tax unrealized gains as income uh, or not. Arguing that uh, Justice Alito had to recuse from that case because the lawyer bringing that case, David Rivkin, was also, I don't, I don't really understand what he was doing, but he was kind of like helping conduct the interview Justice Alito gave the Wall Street Journal, in, yeah. where he sort of you know Two hit back against critics of the court and said that Congress has no power to regulate the court at all. Because he, that lawyer participated in that interview that, that creates a conflict of interest because that lawyer is representing the party in Moore. And Justice Alito said no. And he did so 
not in an interview to uh, the Wall Street Journal, but actually in a statement that was attached to a kind of routine orders list. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. He says there's no valid reason for his recusal in this case. And, you know, he says, you know, he's never had any discussions about the case with Rivkin. Rivkin was working as a journalist when he participated in uh, the interview. Many colleagues in the court have been interviewed by attorneys who've practiced for the court. Some have co-authored books with those attorneys that didn't, and that did not require recusal. And he says, this is interesting. The theory underlying Senator Durbin's request fundamentally misunderstands the circumstances under which Supreme Court justices must work. We have no control over the attorneys whom parties select or represent them. And as a result, we are often presented with cases which one of the attorneys has spoken favorably or unfavorably about our work or character. Similarly, we receive briefs filed by or on behalf of members of Congress who have either supported or opposed our confirmations or who have made either favorable or unfavorable comments about us or our work. We participate in cases in which one or more of the attorneys is a former law clerk, a former colleague, or an individual with whom we have long been acquainted. If we were accused in such cases, we would regularly have less than a full bench and the court's work would be substantially disrupted and distorted. So here's my two thoughts. I think he's right about recusal. If the principle that was being advanced were extended, it would create this whole mess of recusal and it would allow parties to game cases by just hiring Supreme Court advocates who, you know, had some some relationship of some kind with the justices. And at least under a system where there aren't kind of backup justices, that would be very problematic. But I say that, you know, at the same time thinking that the Wall Street Journal interview was ill-advised and it also seemed particularly ill-advised to bring a Supreme Court advocate, you know, get that person involved. Not really clear. Not at all clear why Rivkin was involved in that. I mean, he doesn't, he's not like a journalist employed by the Wall Street Journal to my understanding, but maybe he's just a friend. Um, He's not employed by the Wall Street Journal, but he has published hundreds of articles, op-eds and book reviews on a wide variety of subjects, according to Alito. Yeah, fair. But I mean, you know, why does he need to be the guy interviewing him? Right. I mean, I, so it's hard to know what was going on with the interview. It, it could be that Rivkin and Alito are also friends and that Rivkin therefore sort of brokered the interview, which would both explain why he's there, but then raise a new round of questions about the nature of their friendship. I don't know. Or it could be that Toronto said, I don't know, is Toronto a lawyer? Who Toronto said, I'm not a lawyer. I'd like to bring in a, a sophisticated lawyer for this one. And Rivkin is the yeah. guy he trusted. It's hard to know. I, I don't totally understand Durbin's theory. So is the theory... I mean, so just as Alito's sort of responds with these kind of hilarious footnotes, as if the theory is anybody who has ever interviewed you or anybody who you've ever written with can't be a counsel in any case, right? And, and so he has various examples where that's not true. Although some of them are a little off. Like, Justice Amanda Tyler finished Justice Ginsburg's book after Justice Ginsburg died. Obviously, Justice Ginsburg did not have to retroactively recuse herself from a case three years before that <laughs> in foresight of the possibility that Amanda Tyler would later would later do that. Although she may have helped work on the book earlier in the process. She may have, but I'm not sure if we know. Maybe it doesn't slid in us. But I do wonder, is there something special about the period while a case is pending? Like, hmm. like now, think about clerk reunions. I don't, I don't know if you know, but like, if you were a, a former law clerk to a justice who also has a case pending at the court, like you argued at that term, you know, is there some norm that you shouldn't go to the reunion and interact with your justice? I don't think because, so. I've never, I was never told that. Yeah, I don't think so. But, but you could imagine that might be the more limited thing Durbin is looking for. 
or and this is what worries me is it's more like no normal interactions are fine but these wall street journal interviews were so freaking weird yeah that this is like weird interactions are not fine yeah. that's hard it's hard to articulate i mean i do think that some confusion might be sort of a, a conflation between rules for recusal when the friend is a party to the case versus when the friend is a lawyer mm-hmm. right that seems different which way in the sense that there's a greater obligation to recuse when you are you know have a close relationship to the party rather than just to the lawyer right yeah although why is that i guess the the point that the people can choose whatever lawyer they want is part of it so yeah yeah um and and i think the idea being that you can kind of separate you know the fact that this has some some professional advantage from your friend rather than just like directly ruling for your friend in a case where their interests are at stake. Yeah. Although sometimes it goes the other way. So like former Supreme court law clerks can't participate as lawyers in a case for two years after they clerked. I think they could still be parties. <laughs> I mean, I think if, if you, yeah. you know, if you, <laughs> if you were assaulted by the police, you know, the next year and brought a qualified immunity action, I think you'd still be allowed to seek cert. You couldn't, you couldn't, do it pro se? I guess not. Like if you were unconstitutionally detained, you couldn't file a habeas petition on your own behalf? Well, wait a minute. So the Supreme Court rule, does it say in a professional capacity or something? Mm-hmm. It's rule is that seven. In, is right? that in the court rules or do we, is that somewhere else? No, it's, it's rule seven. Yeah. Rule seven of the Supreme Court rules. No employee of this court shall practice as an attorney or counselor in any court. Uh, while employed, okay. Nor shall any person, after leaving such employment, participate in any professional capacity in any case pending before this court for two years. Hmm. So you could participate in a non-professional capacity. Yeah, okay. If anyone can come up with uh, examples where that occurred, I would be fascinated to hear them. Cannot imagine. Okay, but I, I will say, I will give some credit Justice Alito for the format and for the explanation. I do think that transparency... Uh, about these matters helps. I think it's useful that we have the Scalia opinion explaining why he doesn't recuse from a case involving Vice President Cheney. I think this is useful. I think we can build up a body of kind of quasi precedent here uh, on these cases. And, you know, it, it shows, it shows a certain amount of respect. I mean, I I think that he's uh, Justice Alito is clearly very annoyed by all this, but it, it does show kind of the public that you're, you're willing to at least recognize that they might care about stuff like this and that you're you know you feel some obligation to kind of explain it yeah i think providing an explanation like this is great yeah plus i take it if he hadn't done it in this format you know his go-to alternative format would be to uh give another interview to the wall street journal and that just seems like it would be a little rich to yeah give a third statement to the wall street journal explaining why his previous statements to the wall street journal did not require recusal maybe he could have hired counsel for the other side and more to help him with that interview and then it would have kind of canceled out and no one could really complain. I think the other side is the SG. <laughs> True. I don't know. You, maybe uh, maybe you could just yeah. call in the SG and offer her a banana and talk about <laughs> At it. At least but. six or seven. This is in this uh, coming out of this fifth circuit case that basically tells the government tells the uh, administration that it can't have contacts with uh, social media companies um, on a theory that the, the the government had engaged in sort of a pattern of 
First Amendment violations by kind of encouraging and arguably, according to the the plaintiffs, uh, threatening these social media companies uh, with you know deleting various posts and moderating various posts that were were alleged to have you know misinformation yeah. in them. And uh, this is one of these cases where a district judge in the Fifth Circuit issued a kind of kind of wild, broad ruling. It was heavily criticized in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, did not overturn it uh, in part, uh, but actually affirmed it uh, with respect to some of the defendants, including uh, the White House, uh, the Surgeon General, the CDC, and the FBI. I think this uh, breaks the pattern by not coming from the Northern District of Texas, but instead coming from the Western District of Louisiana, which is next to Texas. So we're we're getting there. Uh, Yeah, so the SG says... What we did is totally fine, and also this kind of relief is, and there's no standing, and this is you know way overbroad relief, right? Do, do you have a view about this? I mean, only the the very very you know knee jerk reaction that it did seem a little crazy to be issuing a injunction like this, telling you know the government that it can't like talk to people right. without having pa- I you know yeah. I skimmed the opinion but did not dig into it and. Did not certainly did not dig into the First Amendment precedent here. Right. So I think the First Amendment precedent is actually kind of a hard question because it so much depends on how you frame it. Like on the one hand, and the government leans on this, they say, look, we have the bully pulpit. We like yell at people and tell them what to do all the time and just hope that the fact that we're the president, you know, means they'll listen. Uh, but on the other hand, in this world, surely it's true that when you're a big corporation and the people with the power to use their enforcement discretion to destroy you, come in and tell you what to do, that you feel a little bit coerced to do it. And you can you can certainly imagine the obvious end runs where the government's like, well, we're not allowed to censor this speech, but we'll just threaten everybody and make them do it. Yeah, I mean it kind of depends on whether, you know, what kind of threat there is. I mean, certainly yeah. if they say like we are going to prosecute you if you right. speak in this way, that seems very troubling. Right. But even if they don't, even if it's, you know, I mean, so the FBI might even be different from the CDC. You might think that the FBI is kind of inherently a little more coercive when the FBI comes and says, you know, do this. That that it's weird for the, to say that the government can ask other people to do what it can't do. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, that, that doesn't seem weird. Is that, is that not I weird? I mean, the fact, the thing that you can't do forcefully, you can't ask other people to do. You can't, like, you can ask. You can ask people. I can ask people to do all sorts of things that I can't do myself. Yeah, is it different when it's the government? I mean, so if, it's, if we said, like, the government really wants to establish Christianity as the national religion, they're not allowed to. So they said, just go around everybody, every every private enterprise in the country and say, you know, would you please say a lot of Christian stuff since we can't? That seems, I don't know, I don't know maybe it's fine. Yeah. Maybe the establishment clause is different from the free speech clause. Part of it, my reaction is, I actually find the underlying problem sort of hard to think through in the abstract. It so much depends on sort of like the specific context, which makes like this kind of nationwide relief seem wildly overbroad to me. And also it makes the standing thing seem like confused. Yeah. Like if you had somebody suing saying, you know, I was kicked off Twitter for a month and it's the government's fault and the damages to being kicked off Twitter are, you know, whatever. I lost a thousand Substack subscriptions. Therefore, I would like a remedy. I at least understand how to think about that. And we can try to figure out why are you kicked off Twitter and what's the causation and so on. When it's like this general, like the government should just stop talking to Twitter because 
maybe some people were kicked off Twitter who shouldn't have been three years ago. It seems problematic how abstract it is. Yeah. What's your instinct about what's going to happen here? The Ghost Guns 5 will grant relief and four justices will dissent. All right. Well, we will see. Um, that probably won't maybe. be resolved by the time this episode yeah. airs, but maybe sometime next week. This might also be one of those cert before judgment cases. Like maybe the court will just be like, oh, yeah, we want to get into this first amendment issue on the merits. And let's just do that. That works. Yeah. But they still would have to figure out whether to, you know, what to do with the interim relief in the meantime. Yes. Yes. They could grant a temporary stay. That might make it easier for them to grant a stay. Say, we'll stay relief, but we'd like to hear argument. Yeah. I guess so. So let's see. What else? Uh, I think really just one more thing, which is. Uh, coming out of uh, Alabama mm-hmm. uh, in the wake of last term's uh, Milligan case that sort of said uh, that the way Alabama had drawn its legislative districts was a violation of the Voting Rights Act. There's now this question about how to redraw the districts and you know what the court's opinion requires uh, the legislature to do. Yeah, Can you help help set this up a little bit more? Well, so Allen versus Milligan, recall, was this challenge by the state of Alabama to the kind of prevailing understanding of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, um, where a lot of people thought they were going to convince the court to abandon something called the Jingles Test and make it you know, harder to force uh, states to draw majority minority districts, but in the end they didn't. And so then the, the question is, what happens now that they've lost? I think at the time the case came out even, you know, Alabama was already not just rushing to draw i guess the question is ultimately does alabama have to have one majority minority district or two they would like to have one and the lower court would like them to have two and they did not rush to draw a second and instead they went and like re-legislated and then you know again came back with one even though the lower courts had said in the previous case that the voting rights act requires them to draw uh two or as close to two as is reasonably possible like maybe you can't quite get the second one to be a majority minority district but it should be close and they didn't do that. And the Supreme Court affirmed without really talking about that very much. Like, yeah, I, I went back and, you know, it, we, I read this fairly carefully some months ago, but it had been a while. And I have trouble keeping all the details in my head, I found. And I went back to look at it to try to figure out, you know, what the court said about the remedy. And I, there's not a lot in the opinion. Right. I mean, right. it, I would, it yeah. agrees there's a violation, but not, it's not at all clear what's supposed to happen next. Right. Well, it's part because the court affirmed. So the lower courts, the lower courts before had set, had been a little more specific with the remedy and it said Alabama needs to draw one majority minority district and one other district that's as close to majority minority as reasonably possible. And then Alabama appealed saying, no, we don't because we have these various theories. And the court said, we don't like your theories. And then Allen ended the judgments of the district court in the Castro case and the Milliken case are affirmed. Yeah, that's so, interesting. I mean, I guess, does that I, I guess in terms of like a formal order that leaves a formal order in place, but could the court's reasoning kind of inform the scope of the relief that had been granted already going forward or does yeah. it? Yeah. I wasn't well, really sure about that. Well, that's kind of what I'm wondering. And also, so, you know, in, in a lot of contexts, there's something called the, the law of the case doctrine. That's like, you don't, you know, once you've gone up once, at some point you sort of lose your chances to keep, like coming up with new arguments about why this whole thing shouldn't work. Now it's, and sometimes we would say, I think 
look, if you didn't want to have, if you thought that was the wrong answer on this understanding of the, of the act, you should have like appealed on that too. You know, having having sort of like picked your way at your argument that the district court was wrong and lost, you don't get to just like come back with like a new cert petition that says, okay, how about this one? Now, you know, it's a little different to the Supreme Court because you don't have a mandatory right of appeal. So it could be that if they'd come in with this well, other you, argument. You do here. Because uh, this, this is coming from a three-judge district court. Oh, I wonder if that might change it too. Although I th- some of the cases are on cert and yeah, some are not. Yeah, there's, 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 there's like yeah. one coming from a single-judge district court and some yeah. coming from a... And I did not dig in enough to figure out, you know, what's going on there. Right. right. So, but I mean, so as I understand, like it's still the, the bottom line here technically is sort of Alabama is coming back with a new argument, a new, like more, a new, you know, having failed to change the scope of the Voting Rights Act, we're going to try again with a new argument why we don't have to do this. And it's a little unclear to me whether they can do that. And also unclear why they think anybody who ruled against them last time or ruled against them this time. It is the idea, so just as Kavanaugh joined Allen last time, you know, but with this kind of reluctant concurring opinion, saying the Voting Rights Act's time is coming, even if we aren't there yet or something. Yeah, it's a, I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement. Okay. But, I mean, I, I think it's not an unfair. You How know, would you correctly state it? I, I think expressing, you know, expressing some skepticism about mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. and its its future, but you know, I don't think like clearly saying you know its time is coming, right? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, he says in the in his concurring opinion, the authority to conduct race based redistricting cannot extend indefinitely into the future. Yeah, I mean, he says yeah. Justice Thomas notes that even if Congress can do this, the authority cannot extend indefinitely into the future. But I yeah. think that's agreeing with that statement. Yeah, I suppose but, so. So, but now Alabama's back. They have uh, great lawyers and a very you know strongly worded petition saying, "No, we should you know we should be allowed to do this." But they still haven't done the thing that the lower court said they had to do that the Supreme Court affirmed last time. So there's a kind of I, I don't know a potential for either a sort of showdown here or a maybe a even more definitive word from the court. Yeah, what do you like? I assume that the court is going to not let Alabama do this. How does this interact with, you know, your views about, you know, when courts can order states to draw new districts or draw the districts themselves? Because there's there's a special master who's in place, right? Uh, is that right? Yeah, who I think presumably is going to go draw districts themselves soon yeah yeah so i think the current maps are our state drawn maps are maps drawn by the legislature and signed with the governor and they're just non-compliant maps so so far on, on my view uh mine and michael mcconnell's view you know if the court the court might well affirm the lower court again and say no these maps are still no good and then the, then we will at some point get to the question of well what do we do if the state just keeps refusing to draw good maps right that's and I right, I think probably what the court will at some point do is draw its own maps. I am skeptical that that's a lawful solution under Moore versus Harper because the legislature is supposed to draw the maps. I do think it's better. Like there's a spectrum of, of things. It's more defensible if the if you've given the legislature a bunch of bunch of chances. It's more defensible to say, well, look, we tried to have the legislature draw the maps, 
and now we're kind of in some weird second best territory as opposed to there are some times when the court doesn't even really give the legislature a chance to draw the maps and that seems yeah. worse like what is supposed to happen if the legislature just refuses to do it over and over in your view yeah well so so my preferred choice and i have not i've not run this to ground enough to, to write it i haven't written this up yet although i'll just i'll float it here i think it's pretty simple i think we just tell the state you can't feel the congressional delegation until you have lawful maps and if you like <laughs> so who what happens uh, nobody can go to congress from alabama until they have lawful maps if alabama's content to not be represented in congress they can be contumacious as long as they want to but if they want to get back in congress then they got to draw some maps that a court's willing to uphold so the incentives are pretty well aligned and that's what we do in a lot of other contexts i think you know it's so like they could just like cancel democracy well who could, alabama yeah what's well, the house so, no, the rest of the, the rest of the house will go on just fine it's more like alabama could if alabama refuses to comply with the constitution then it's choosing to sit out i mean that's what we do for other you know there's some important national security policy and congress enacts a statute and it you know doesn't work it's unconstitutional the courts would say well this doesn't work if you want a constitutional statute go enact one we're not going to like sit down and enact one for you and even if congress tries like three times to come up with a policy and it doesn't work the courts don't it's, don't like say well fine we'll create a special master and enact the statute for you they just say you know the statute's unconstitutional maybe it's not facial so maybe only a couple of districts are invalid i don't know but but i just think that would be the more straightforward but but maybe there's some reason people will tell me this doesn't work or is i mean it's obviously such a harsh remedy that people wouldn't like that yeah i also think you could do something more like a severability analysis where you just take the existing map and like the minimum amount of changes to it necessary to make it lawful like the way you would have the statute and maybe that's okay yeah that's different from the special master well i guess we'll find out or we won't yeah probably won't i was gonna work on an article about election law remedies because i was starting just you know between all these things to get really into it but saw that ali is actually putting together a new like restatement or something on election law remedies with a bunch of really good people so i probably just wait and read that that's something that we can do restatements on i think so you know they gotta sell books dan and uh who buys the books i thought they just i think people buy the books yeah i think so i think lawyers buy the books ideally huh you're not easily available do you get them for free as an ali member no no i have to buy them too i think maybe i got a discount on the website i'm not sure 10 percent off or maybe i can maybe i could download them actually so maybe i do I've, i'm not sure i'm not very good at this but i don't i don't get a paper copy or anything like i had to find my first statement of conflicts on ebay yeah i've got a the the library's copy of the model penal code is sort of permanently checked out to me in my office yeah you gotta get your own i don't teach criminal law anymore so i don't really need to you're never gonna teach it again uh no never say never but you know i'm gonna hopefully do you know invest in preparing con law using your book and yeah. hopefully teach that for a while see how that cool. goes see how i like that i got my second copy of your book sent to me they've sent that to me at my house so i've got my home copy and my work copy oh uh, you like to do that yeah you you know you need to have backup yeah because otherwise you accidentally leave your copy one place or the other and then you're in trouble yeah i also just i don't like carrying stuff yeah so I, I try, like, I don't like to bring a bag or anything to work if I can avoid it. It is a big book because you kind of, like, you write, you have stuff in there about, like, every part of the Constitution practically. Yes. And we have several hundred pages of stuff on the First Amendment. So you yeah. could. Which most people yeah. don't teach as part of the kind of first year constitutional law class. 
Right. There's almost enough in there to teach a First Amendment course if you wanted to as part of it. So, and you know, it's obviously a big area of law as as demonstrated by the Shadow Docket stuff today. All right. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about? I feel like we kind of, you know, batted cleanup today. Got a lot of stuff out. Trailing off, Dan. Did, did I? Did I just trail off? No, I meant the episode is trailing okay. off. The court is trailing <laughs> off. The term yeah. is trailing off. Yeah. I guess I guess we need to start thinking about whether we're going to preview some cases in the yeah. future. Well, there are very few cases, so we could, I mean, I'm not saying we should, but we could we could basically preview them all pretty easily. That's, no, we cannot preview them all, right? I, there are like 12 cases. In terms of ones that have been granted, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. There's like, um, there's like 20. Okay, fine. But like 12 have been set for argument. Uh, okay, fair. 12 or so. Maybe yeah. 13. Yeah. There is a another big voting you know, uh, redistricting case coming up in the second week of the new term, Alexander versus South Carolina State Conference, which is about um, racial gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. So that could be big. Um, I don't know enough to know how that's going to interact with the other stuff we've been talking about, but we will maybe dig into that one and figure that out. Well, you didn't mention Great Lakes Insurance Southeast versus Raiders Retreat Realty Company. Was I supposed to? Oh, Dan. The question is whether, under federal admiralty law, a choice of law clause in a maritime contract can be rendered unenforceable if enforcement is contrary to the strong public policy of the state whose law is displaced. And then I think the petitioners, represented by uh, Jeff Wall and Morgan Ratner at Sullivan and Cromwell, the respondent is represented by Howard Bashman uh, of How Appealing Fame with Adam Unikowski on the brief. Oh, that's uh, an interesting one-two punch there. It's a serious showdown, yeah, and it's a really hard, hard case. I mean, we can wait until it comes out, but we're we're talking about that case for sure. That might be the biggest case of the term. <laughs> um, not going to engage with that. That claim, I, I yeah. will engage with the case if you want. <laughs> Eventually, do you actually want to? Uh, at some point, no. I mean, because you like admiralty and choice of law. It's the intersection of choice of law, federal common law, and conflict of laws federal jurisdiction in one of these contexts that's not at all obvious. It's just a great, and the, the level of lawyering is extremely high. It's going to be a great case. Uh, okay. so people on both sides that have asked us, we were interested in, asked me and Steve Sachs whether they were interested in writing an amicus brief. And at least my reaction was like, wow, sounds like a really interesting case. I look forward to reading somebody else's briefs about this because I don't have time to figure it out, but I'd like to figure it out at some point. Okay. Well, Listeners, chime in if that's the one you want to hear us preview. If there's other ones, tell us, and we will consider that request with the consideration that it deserves. Hmm. All right. You want to take us out? Thanks very much for listening. Please rate and review on your podcast app of choice, such as the Apple Podcast Store. Please let us know if we're doing better on trailing off at the end of sentences. I'm trying really hard on that. Visit our website at dividedargument.com where we have transcripts of episodes. Our merchandise store is store.dividedargument.com. Send us an email at pod at dividedargument.com or leave us a voicemail at 314 649 
Thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all of our endeavors. Thanks for the many emails and feedback, which we're you know trying to, to go through and give more attention to. And if we don't record another episode for a long time, it's because the Fifth Circuit has told us we are not allowed to have any contact with our listeners. That's a good one. Thank you.